welcome to the Told Me to Learn and Develop for Medical Educators podcast series from the Frank H. Netter, MD, School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. This podcast is for busy medical school faculty who want to expand their knowledge in teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Coplett, and I will bring you interviews with experts in medical education, fellow faculty, and medical students to discuss the issues most relevant to today's medical educators. Dr. Elizabeth Stewart joins us today to discuss how we can effectively teach clinical reasoning. Dr. Stewart is a pediatrician and medical education leader who has held many leadership positions at Stanford University School of Medicine, including the director of the core clerkship in pediatrics, which she has led since 2003. Her primary academic interests include cross-cultural communication, performance assessment, faculty development and clinical teaching, and clinical reasoning, the focus of today's podcast. Elizabeth, I'm thrilled that you can join me today. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start out just defining clinical reasoning. Can you define the term for us? Um. I think the way that I think about it, I'm sure that there are formal definitions in different places, but but when I think about and talk about clinical reasoning, it's really problem solving. And it's it's problem solving to figure out what's going on with the patient and what the patient needs. Um, and that kind of encompasses what's the right data to gather and, and how you put that together. And there's a huge component of communicating with patients themselves and then also with other providers to kind of help take care of the patient. And so when I talk to faculty and residents about teaching medical students on their third-year clerkships, I often say, I often refer to the black box of third year being clinical reasoning. And what I mean by that is that at the beginning of their clerkship, students often don't understand how the resident or the attending came up with the differential diagnosis for a particular patient who's admitted to the hospital and and also don't understand necessarily how they knew exactly which questions to ask. But by the end of third year, if they can create that differential diagnosis themselves, I think that's the big accomplishment of third year. So, and and the interesting thing is, I think that that's different now. So at least in our school, um, but I also think in many other schools, because students are learning sort of the how-to of clinical reasoning much earlier than they're used to. They're learning the discrete skills that go into it. And so I'm curious what you think about that and when you think we should start teaching students about the clinical reasoning process. Um, I I agree with you about the black box. It's almost like there's something magical that happens, um, and I think that uh, and, and part of that is is that what we're dealing with is kind of a cognitive switch, or maybe switch is too precise, but a, a something that's happening evolution. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's it's hard to it's hard to articulate exactly what's happening and how, but, um, but I, to answer your question about how early, I think super early, like right at the beginning, uh, I think that, um, grounding everything that students learn at the beginning in an understanding of what they're going to be doing a little bit more, you know, later on is, 
important for a lot of reasons. I think that it it helps them kind of store their new knowledge and organize it in a way that's meaningful and then can be retrieved in a way later on that that fits with what they're going to be doing. I, I think it's what students come to medical school wanting to do. Um, yeah. And so it's great. beneficial for that. Um, but I think it, it also kind of takes away this divide that I feel happens when you switch from classroom to clinical, where suddenly the expectation is really different and mysterious, sort of what am I supposed to be doing here? How do, how are these people doing it? Like you said. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of a fan of the idea of figuring out how to introduce concepts early and then uh, really start in at the beginning. So what you just said is, is reminding me a bit of, so you were the keynote speaker for our clerkship director retreat this past year, uh, which um, probably most people listening don't know that. Um, and you talked about the difference in thought processes between classroom learning and clinical learning. And you you um, talked about the gather-think model versus the think-gather-think model. So can, can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah. It's, I think it's, it's almost, I'm not even sure it's a thought process as much as a kind of how we've traditionally taught. And so I think things are changing in a lot of medical schools, but, but the super traditional, at least from, you know, when I went through approach is that when you start off in your first year, if you have any clinical skills training, it will be uh, that you learn how to do a really generic comprehensive history. And like, these are the components that go into a medical history. And you ask these questions in this way. Um, and you may learn to do all of the physical exam maneuvers, but when you practice them, you either practice them on fellow students, or you may go into the hospital and you're doing physical exam maneuvers on patients completely unlinked to the problem that they have. It's sort of the patient might be admitted for an eye problem, but it's a willing patient who will allow you to do a liver exam. So we're going to focus on the liver exam and this patient whose liver isn't really involved. So it's, it's kind of, these are the skills you're going to use later and they're not linked to why. Um, and so you learn to gather all this information and then later we start to teach you how to put it together and think about it. And to like the, the concept of a differential diagnosis comes in later. You start to learn about illnesses and develop, you know, uh, illness scripts, uh, collections of understanding of, of what an illness looks like. That comes later after you've learned the, the basic gathering skills. And it's it's reflected also in um, many people be familiar with the RHYME framework, reporter, interpreter, manager, educator, and the, the sort of idea that developmentally you, you start off gathering and reporting information and then you think about it later. Similarly, the SOAP note format or presentation format puts the data first and then the assessment of the data later. So all of this sort of culturally, we're in this, first you have the data, then you sift through it and give it meaning. But what I think really happens in most medical settings and situations, and here I should I should note that I'm, I'm an outpatient general pediatrician. So the problems I see tend to be relatively straightforward and, and that, you know, that's a little bit of a thing to know about me. Um, frames what I think and say. But um, most of the time, as a physician is about to see a patient, they've got the age of the patient and a chief complaint. And that little tiny bit of information 
causes your mind to start going. And you have your immediate differential. You have sort of a, these are the things I need to be worried about and, and check on. And that drives the data gathering. Then you gather some data and then you think about it some more. And that causes you to gather, or think and gather, think and gather in a cycle kind of thing. And it's not really, that's, that's kind of what happens in a doctor's mind. And I think that we teach students that first you gather, then you think. And I think that that throws things off yeah. um, is sort of that. That makes a lot of sense. What are some common challenges that students face in, particularly in the clerkship years, in developing their clinical reasoning processes? Um, I think there are a lot. And I, I think that there are sort of specific skills that are challenging. But I, I, the things that I'm really interested in are kind of how we set students up and the challenges that we maybe create for them or, or could obstacles that we could remove. Um, and I think one of them is kind of mixed expectations. So you're working with millions of different people who have a different point of view on, on how things should be done. Um, and then sort of related to that, the process of clinical reasoning, the way that we know how students are are thinking through problems is is what they present to us. And so the the presentation on rounds or in clinic becomes this huge kind of loaded thing and it's serving a dual purpose. It's intended to help the patient and and help the student, you know, get the team to help them help the patient. But it's also the kind of key thing that we look at when we're evaluating students' skills and I think that that dual function sometimes uh, trips students up and they get really focused on, I need to say this exactly in the right way. And I need to be academic about my differential um, in order to demonstrate what I know and what I know how to do. And and sometimes that approach kind of conflicts with what would actually be beneficial for the team and the patient. So there's also a huge demand for efficiency in the clinical setting. Um, and so there's this push to be concise and, and focus on what matters. And yet the students feel like they need to show off what they what they know. So I think in that, um, I, I feel like a lot of students get caught up in that. And where we think that they're not actually reasoning well, it's because they have they're aiming for a different goal or expectation um, than than we really want them to be. So those are a couple. What do you think? So, what do you think the goal is that they're aiming for? My sense for a lot of students is that that they have been taught, or they've come off a clerkship that that, or with an attending that wants something different, and they are trying to follow those rules and say, "Well, I'm going to, you know, if we just focus on diagnostic reasoning, I'm going to make sure that I do a really thorough differential that addresses the vindicate all of the systems." Um, and makes it clear that that I know what I'm talking about and that I've learned, I've done my reading. Um, and it, I think um, in, in a clinic setting on rounds, really you may end up then with something that's very impractical and it doesn't, it, it becomes the academic, um, sometimes what I call a disembodied differential where it's very theoretical, but it doesn't match the patient. So this actual patient in front of us really can't have all of those things on that differential. Um, and yet the student feels compelled to report that 
you know, this could be this very rare disorder. Um, and I, and so I think for me, one of the most common things is unrealistic items on the differential that I think are put there for, uh, trying to be thorough because they've been trained mm-hmm. that that's what they should do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that probably also gets them positive feedback in a lot of situations. Exactly. And I think that's the thing is that the clarifying expectations is important. So will I, when I have students in clinic, I will say, well, okay, so one thing I want you to know is what we're really going to focus on is just this patient and, um, and taking care of this patient. And the, you don't need to give me a huge differential to show me that you know a million things. Um, and I, and I think that you can separate out what we're doing clinically in, in real time. You can then go into a teaching session later on and say, let's go back to that patient um, where we actually had a very narrow differential that, that fit the patient. But let's change things up and say, well, what if this had been true? And what would the theoretical differential be? So you can get to that kind of broadening academic approach, um, maybe just not in real time when you're also trying to to work through things efficiently. That's such a great pro- that's such a great approach. I actually had never thought of of doing it quite that way. Um, and what I like about that is that you're teaching them about that realistic practical differential, which is what they really need to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's so hard to learn how to prioritize that differential, right? So that's a super important skill. But they really do need to learn about, well, why isn't cancer on the differential for this sore throat? You know, like, you know, what, what because it, theoretically it could be, right? But why isn't it for this patient? And to teach them that as well. And and how do you do risk assessments regarding those worst diagnoses and most severe diagnoses and things like that? Right. I definitely sort of one of the exercises that we've we've played with is going back and forth very deliberately between kind of... I don't know what the right term for it is, but the practical differential of common, 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 don't miss sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the vindicate and, and yeah. to sort of say, let's, let's really look at it both ways because you do need both frames. The other thing that I find, um, and again, this is why I put up the disclaimer of being an outpatient general pediatrician. When students come off of usually internal medicine, um, there's, I think there's, um, complexity there and and value put on the broad differential and students come in and say well well no i need to really give you everything that could be even remotely possible and and um so again you're dealing with people who are constantly accommodating to different uh, expectations and i think we can do probably a better job of being clear about what we want um in whatever setting we're in you know i I don't necessarily want to go down this path too much, but this is really, I can't, I can't help it. What it's making me think of is I was just talking to somebody yesterday. I was talking to our Dean for Student Affairs about the whole concept of the open note and how that changes everything. So even, even more important to keep that differential realistic, right? If your patient is immediately seeing the note as well. Right. Well, and so in pediatrics, I think across the country, but particularly where I am, we do family-centered rounds. So that means the whole team goes in, in front of the family, and the presentation happens with the student leading it, and and the the parents and the kid are there. Um, And so you have to stop using medical language. You have to speak regular English. 
Uh, and this issue of how much goes onto the differential becomes a huge source of anxiety for students. Uh, and, and again, they say, but I need to show the attending I've thought about all of this. Um, so we coach them in that situation to just be really deliberate and say, you know, as long as they think that family can handle the ambiguity, this is not related to your child. This is related to what a textbook might say this finding could be, but your kid doesn't fit this. So, but let me go through it, you know, or again, take it outside of the room and don't yeah. do that. But, yeah. um, but yeah. So you're, so you're ahead of the curve though in peds because you're doing family centered rounds. So that's great. It, it definitely forces a different <laughs> approach. To it does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So now I, I wanted to get practical. Um, a bit. So if I'm a faculty member and I'm working with a medical student during a clerkship and I see that they're having difficulty developing an appropriate differential diagnosis, for example, or if you have a better a better example of a common challenge with clinical reasoning, that's fine too. Um, what are some strategies that I can use to help them? Um. So I think there are a couple, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of things, but I think that um, like if you were in the outpatient setting um, or if you're working with a student who is about to go in inpatient and pre-round or, or do a, an initial admission interview and exam, if you have the time, I think the, the sort of uh, sort of priming ahead of uh, an encounter to sort of say, what are you thinking just based on the little bit of information we have? What's your initial differential? And what questions are you going to ask and what data are you going to look for to refine that? And then they sort of plan and then they go in and do what they're doing. And then, you know, how did what you, what you got change your, your thinking and your differential? So, so kind of breaking it down into if, if the process of reasoning involves comparing the patient situation to illness scripts, stored understanding of illnesses, that sort of constant comparison as you get more data, stopping periodically uh, with the student to say, what are you thinking now? And, and what did that piece of information do to change your thinking? So that's, that's pretty intensive coaching, um, but it can give you a lot of information about what's getting in the way. The other thing that I try to do with students. If you ever watch, um, if you ever watch a resident go into a clinic room and come back out, they don't tell you all of the details and then tell you what they think. They say, yeah, this is a toddler who I think has an ear infection. And then they present more detail of the history and an exam. And it's, it's almost like they're sort of persuading you that they're correct about the um, the diagnosis. And I try to sometimes get students to do that too. Um, and say, tell me upfront what you're thinking. Um, and tell me now the details and what else you thought about. And, and it allows me kind of a window into where are there gaps in knowledge uh, that are getting in the way. Um, it forces them. We do a lot of playing around with, I say, you can only tell me three things. What are the three things you're going to tell me? to prove to me that this is this diagnosis um, and not something else kind of a thing. So That's a great one. I, it, uh, they don't like it. <laughs> I, have a, I have a case that we do and I say, you get five pieces of data that you can use during pre-rounding. Like here's the one-liner for the patient and uh, a note from yesterday. You Now you've got to 
pick the five things you're going to go get. And I say, you, you know, your car had a flat tire. You have 30 seconds to pre-round. What's it going to, what's it going to be? It's very uncomfortable. Um, but it really does cause them to have to think about why do I need this information? Um, so that's a data gathering thing. Um, I think that sort of other things, uh, again, when you have the kind of, there's, there's what we call sometimes the silo differential. I don't think this happens that often, but when a, when a patient has maybe five kind of abnormal findings or um, features of what's happening with them, and you end up with a differential that's sort of a differential for each of the features. So it's a massive differential for the fever and another massive differential for the rash, and, and they don't go together. It's not the differential for this patient. Um, I think sometimes there are sort of exercises that you can do where you can say, okay, write out sort of a, a table of the diagnoses that you're considering and then these findings and, and tick off which findings actually match with the different diagnoses and then see what you come up with. Um, and where's the overlap? Because the overlap is really what we're looking for. And so some, that's again, like a very, that's a, heavy duty coaching kind of thing. Um, the other thing that we sometimes do that's a little bit faster and, and it, again, it helps people with, um, I think when they need to pre-round or pick up a patient that they haven't been following the, the highlighter exercise. So, um, just take a highlighter and, and pick 10 pieces of information that are really critical for figuring out the differential or the diagnosis or, um, here's the goal we have for treating this patient. Pick the five pieces of information with your highlighter pen that are going to tell me whether we're making progress toward that goal. So all of these are just kind of breaking down the process and getting the student to uh, explain their thinking, articulate how they're putting things together. And again, I think a ton of the time where they're stuck is in a mismatch of expectations. Um, and that if we can be clear about what it is we're trying to do, that, you know, what will really help the patient. Um, that's the, the one other thing I, I will say is that sometimes students are very aware of this performance element of the presentation and, and anxiety seems to be getting in the way. And they, they feel like I've got to say it exactly in the right order and I've got to get all of the information out, but I don't have a lot of time. So I'm going to rush and make sure. And I think that, um, I try to tell patients the purpose of the presentation is actually, it's a tool for advocating for the patient and the family. You're the person who's got the frontline interaction and you know what's important to the family. Um, you've seen firsthand what's going on with the patient right now. And what you're trying to do is put that information together to convey it to the team in a way that's cogent and clear and effective so that that team can help you take care of the patient. Forget the structured performance that you feel like you have to give. Think of this as your tool for getting a message across on behalf of the patient. And for some students, I think that really resonates and, and they kind of let go then and say, I'm going to, I'm going to do this in the way that I think is going to work. Um, and that's helpful. Elizabeth, there was so much gold in there. I like there's there that was 
It was so helpful. You know, I don't think I've ever thought of the presentation quite in that way. It really does reframe the purpose. And I think in a way that's very accessible to students. I I hope so. And I, again, I think it depends on the student, but um, I feel like the, the third year, there's the black box of clinical reasoning, but then there's also this shift to doctoring. Um, like my purpose shifts and I, you can see it, that there are some students who they come in in the beginning and they're, they're performing. And then by the end, they're clearly like, they believe in themselves as contributors and they embrace the role. Some of them do that right off the, you know, first day of clerkships, they say, I know nothing, but I know that this patient needs a roll of toilet paper and I can probably solve that problem. And they're in there. I'm a, I'm a helper. And, and some of them sort of, it happens over time. And I think that that to me is where we want to push them. And to be honest with you, I think that as we're evaluating them, maybe without really knowing it, that's what we're looking for. And, and some of the judgment that we put on how they present and what they choose to include or not include is, is based on this idea of, um, well, we're really taking care of patients here and they're not quite fitting in yet. They're still acting like a student, but we're judging them as doctors. And I think that if we can blow it up and say, nope, put them in there and let them be doctors doing this for the purpose of, of patient care, I think it, it kind of helps. It's so interesting to think of the overlap um, or I should say the dual purpose of helping students learn clinical reasoning is also helping them develop their professional identity. Yes, exactly. So interesting. So, and the strategies were very helpful. And what I heard in your strategies was if somebody really is struggling with this piece, I mean, this is the thinking part, right? And this is just, it's so critical and so important that it's just going to require some coaching, some investment Mm -hmm. of time, of observation, of talking through it of coaching mm-hmm. them through the thought process. But but it probably also doesn't need to be you know, so much time, right? If I mean, even if you did that with one patient, you know, periodically, that would be so instructive. Yeah, I think so. And again, to me, probably the most efficient thing to try if you're trying to figure out what's going on with a student is this, what I think of as the reverse presentation. Tell me what you think is going on first. Now, back it up with with the data that you think are important to make your case. Because um, to me, it reveals a lot about what's missing in their understanding. And um, yeah. And it's again, it's a little bit like, we'll, we'll, I haven't rounded in the hospital for a long time, but but sort of a phenomenon that happens is there's all these patients on the team, the team's really busy and you'll arrive at a patient room and somebody say, oh, we're going to have to take a lot of extra time because this is a medical student patient. Um, As if to say, we have to wait and listen through a super long presentation with a lot of extraneous stuff that we don't really need. And I'm not sure that we need to like lower our expectations, Hmm. expect them to be doing what the team is doing again on behalf of the patient. Um, Anyway, I think that... um, Again, if we push them toward what we really see in physicians, I think a lot of the time they actually can 
get rise. there. Yeah, they with, can rise to the challenge. The permission, right. Yeah. I, some of it is you have permission to leave out the stuff that you don't think is important. And if I really want it, I will ask you for it. And then you should push me to tell you why. If it's not clear to you why I asked you about urine output, then you need to ask me how I'm using that information. Yeah. Um, and I think the rationale um, has been to have the students do everything because, well, we want to know that they know all the pieces to ask yeah. and that and they, they can't they can't pick and choose until they know all of those pieces. But if we watch them present mm-hmm. enough times, probably even not that many times, we'll know pretty quickly whether they're choosing the right pieces and whether they knew everything. Yeah. And I again, it's a, it's fascinating to me. But if I have all the pieces that I need to take care of the patient from what the student's given me, then isn't that enough? That's enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they clearly selected them, right? So this is great. That's such a good point. Is So I, we may have already covered this, but I'm curious if there's sort of one thing that you've learned in your work in helping medical learners advance their clinical reasoning, like one pearl, you know, what, what do you think that would be? I, <laughs> I think the one thing I've learned is that it's actually really hard um, to figure out how to teach this deliberately. Um, I, it's, I think the reason that I have played with it for as long as I have is that Finding just how to make an idea click for a student is sometimes tricky when you're talking about cognitive processes. That's not really a useful practical pearl. Um, But I I think I would go back to really keeping the end goal in mind. We're training doctors. And so we want to allow them to participate uh, authentically and uh, gather information and convey it kind of as much as they can in the way that we do, um, in the way that we expect residents to. Um, and that if you have that, that mindset, um, that that helps. And, and sort of similarly, same as I tell the students, don't focus on the evaluation, focus on the patient. Um, and your role there, I think that if we do that in our assessment process, I think that that also is helpful too. Um, for us uh, in, in figuring out where to coach next or, or what the issue is. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I, I really feel like you've expanded my perspective on so many things I so appreciated learning from you. Oh, thank you. It's fun to, it's fun to just kind of ramble on about things I think about all the time. <laughs> I think it's just great to have a ch- yeah to have this sort of protected time to just talk about the things that matter to us and it's great. Yeah. Thank you. It's great. Thanks. I'm Lisa Coplet. Thanks for listening and check out our next podcast coming out next month. I would like to thank the people who contributed to this show, Katie Lyons, our producer, and David DeRoche, our program director. For more information on other faculty development opportunities at QU Netter, email katie.lyons at qu.edu. For more information on all of Quinnipiac's podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. 
Also follow us on Twitter at QUPodcasts and on Instagram at told.me.podcast. Thank you.